scripture is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid gallish chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Good morning, FBC. It's Pastor Kyle here, and we're going to continue our talk through 2 Timothy chapter 2 today. We're going to be going through verses 14 through 19 and talking about some very serious stuff. Paul is going to bring up um, such topics as uh, medical uh, disgusting diagnosis. Uh, he's going to talk about betrayal within the church, heresy within the church, evil leadership. He's going to talk about people that misuse God's word for their own gain. So these are, this is going to be a heavy little chunk of scripture today. And because of that, I wanted to, to give us a little bit of levity before we began. And um, I'm going to talk about a tombstone that changed my life. I was about 15 years old, and I was on a meme page when I saw a meme. And this is back when memes were just a picture and some bold white font, and it's ironic or sarcastic or just random. They weren't that funny, but they were the, the only things that we had, right? It, wasn't an honest, it was an honest living making memes back then. And this meme showed a tombstone, and the tombstone has, I'm going to read it in a little bit, has a really strange epitaph on it. And the meme was saying, like, did he, though? And it's this idea that this man, did he, though? Just, just, just bear with me here. So the tombstone reads, The noted hunter, James T. Whitehead, born 1819, died September 25th, 1905, killed 99 bears. We hope he has gone to rest. And so the meme is making a joke. Well, did he, though? Did he actually go to rest, or did this guy, like, crawl out of the grave to kill more bears? Right? 99 bears. This guy had a living. He was a hunter. He, he used his skills to protect the other landowners in Tennessee, and he killed. He, he has on his record 99 verified bear kills. One-on-one -on -one combat. This guy has some crazy stories. There was one time, I guess, a bear was coming at him, and he missed his shot. And so the bear kept coming, right? The bear's coming to kill him. And so he shoves the gun into the bear's mouth, and the bear starts eating the, attacking the gun, and then he pulls out his knife and finishes the bear. This guy is tough. And we only know about this man, this obscure little hunter in the middle of Tennessee in 1905, because of his tombstone. His tombstone is his memorial. His tombstone is what has remained in history to give us a snapshot into the life of James T. Whitehead. And you, you know that, like, there was more to this guy than his just bear-killing obsession. I mean, I love that the, the people that made the tombstone have this almost tongue-in-cheek, like, we hope he's gone to rest. Like, this guy's crazy. Maybe he's going to come back out and kill some demon bears. I don't know. But the point is, is that we would know nothing about his story except for the historical monument, this tombstone, that reveals a little bit about his life. And why am I talking about this? Well, Paul's letter to Timothy was a personal historical document that in, in itself has this kind of power. It's called this memorial power. Inside this document, Paul mentions people. And those people, we have no idea about in any other documents or any other sources. But we do know from Paul and from this historical document called the Bible, a little snapshot of their lives. But today we're going to talk about two guys whose snapshot of their lives are not positive. We're going to talk about two church leaders who are actually deemed heretics in Paul's eyes. And that is their tombstone. Their legacy 
That's their snapshot, is that they were heretical leaders wounding the body of Christ. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more, but this is very important for us today because so many people think that this year it's bringing out the worst in us and it doesn't matter what we do or say, we're just going to get through it. And I guarantee you guys that that mentality is one, not even practical, but two, it's not biblical. God cares so much how we live today. And we're going to talk about like how these two guys probably function in the same way a lot of leaders do today, which is they, they didn't see it coming. They didn't see that their life would be memorialized with this negative epitaph in Scripture for, for the world to see. So let's begin. If you have your Bibles, please open to 2 Timothy chapter 14 through 19. I'll, I'll be reading periodically through it. But right now we're going to ver- focus on verses 14 through 15. So it's 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 15 reads, Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightfully handling the word of truth. So Paul's continuing his conversation from the earlier part of chapter 2. He's talking to Timothy about, one, what it means to be a leader, and two, how to train the other leaders in his life. So he's saying, remind those leaders of the things I just told you about. And we talked about that in the past two weeks. The first part of chapter 2 talks about the different ways that Christians can understand their calling, right? Soldier, athlete, farmer. And this other idea that we have these truths that ground us in who God is and who we are with God. So he's saying, remind them of those things. Because the power of a leader's words goes beyond your understanding. See, he says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Why? Right? He's not just saying don't argue because it does no good and only ruins the hearers. Quarrels, especially at a leadership level, produce confusion and ruination in its listeners. And how do we know what possibly they were quarreling about? Well, there's speculation here, but in the culture around Paul's ministry, there's the Greeks, the Romans, and the Jewish people. And the Greeks and the Romans loved to argue. In fact, it was a normal way that leaders in in either a philosophical group or political group, they would go and spend most of their day (laughs) in the town square having debates, having rhetorical debates against their opponents so that people could hear and be convinced of their side. That's literally like the normal way that life worked in this world. People would, their words were powerful. They knew the power of words and they would use those those words to convince their, their listeners or to confuddle their listeners. And the Jewish leaders also did this in their own way. The Pharisees and the scribes, the people that studied God's word, they would get into heated debates and spend hours and hours arguing throughout all of Scripture and the different rabbinic traditions about a word, a letter choice. They would say, like, no, this, is, this, this translation needs to be this way because of this letter. And they'd be like, you're a fool. How dare you say that? And then basically, it's just a big peacock posturing fest of who's smarter. It's basically a room of PhD, uh, uh, PhD doctors arguing over sentence structure, right? And to some extent, that was helpful if there, was, there wasn't clarity in the passage, but really, it was just to show off. I mean, that's, that's what we're seeing play out even in our lives this year, is that leaders are just standing up there, posturing, trying to argue the public to their side without giving clarity. 
They're just slandering or slamming the other. Or they're, they're, they're sticking to their guns and using straw man arguments or red herrings, or all the things you learn in debate. This idea that they're not actually giving content, they're just causing division, they're causing confusion. They're hurting the hearers, the listeners that are listening to them. And the result of their selfishness, the people that want the spotlight for themselves to profit their own platform, is that the country is more divided and confused than ever before. This happened in the first century, and it's happening today. People don't know what to believe. They thought they did, but now because their leaders are, are fighting, they don't. So Paul says, hey, guess what? I'm going to allude to an earlier set of passages, again earlier in chapter 2, to explain to you what a good leader looks like. And in verse 15, he does that. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He's saying that you need to be a humble worker, a worker who reverently handles God's word, not to use it for your own gain. These leaders were using the words of Jesus and the words of Paul, the words of the apostles for their own gain. And so the idea that I, I, I picture from the biblical perspective is that, you know, that Jesus told the parable of the sower. And the sower in that perspective is probably the father, if not God himself, like, and sowing the seed of Jesus' words to all people. But there's also this illustration that a farmer would hire people to help sow the seed. They're called hired hands. And that's kind of the image that we see that pastors are and leaders are, is they're called hired hands. And they'd be given a portion of the seed, and then they were going to have to sow that seed. And if you're going to be a good worker, you would sow the seed where it needs to go, in the furrows, in the, in the, in the abundant ground, right? And you wouldn't just be throwing it willy-nilly. You wouldn't leave your bag behind. You wouldn't take half the seed and just be like, ah, I can cover the field with this. You would rightly handle it. You would, you would, it would be a precious resource that you were given. And your yield, the, what the crop was yielding, would be kind of up to you. And so here we see that Paul reminds Timothy that sometimes in the world there are these chatty Cathys or gossipy Gregs that get ahead by, by puffing themselves up and talking, talking, talking in the workplace. And we all know those people. They, they don't get much work done, but they get a lot of social work done. And often they can climb the ladder of success because they're pleasing men. They're getting, they're getting their, their opinions out so that men and women trust them. But Paul says, guys, Timothy, you're a worker approved by God. You are working for God. Even though men have elected you, men have, have given you um, your status, your job, guess what? You're not working for them. You're working for God. And, and we will be rewarded in how we obey that calling. So let's continue. Verse 16. It says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And we'll unpack what that is if you don't know what that means. Among them are Hominius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So here's where Paul gets messy, because the topics he's bringing up here are, are progressively more intense and disheartening for Timothy. And, and guess what? It doesn't stop in chapter 2. Paul will keep bringing up the state of the church over and over because actually the people in this letter that Paul are addressing, the good and the bad and the ugly, are church people. Every single person you're reading in, in Timothy can be argued to be a Christian, someone that would call themselves a Christian. And so when Paul brings up these, these kind of insanely uh, specific or maybe even un uncomfortable topics. He's saying, like, this is not from the world out there. This is from our people, right? So let's unpack one thing that we got to do before we move on. Irreverent babble. <laughs> it's just it's, it's something we don't say. But like, don't you dare engage in such irreverent babble. 
right? No one says that. Uh, I mean, if you do, you're awesome and I want to be your friend. But no one just uses that kind of language today. So maybe the best way to unpack it would be prideful conjecture or prideful speculation. And that's kind of like more accessible for us because that happens everywhere, right? We see this all the time. And we see this further developed in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. If you have the Bible, turn to that. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. So 2 Timothy 4. So in chapter 3, uh, verse 3, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passage, passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Basically, the idea is that people are seeking people who have it all together, who have these who have these good predictions, who have these proud speculations, who have solid conjecture. But to God, the wisdom of men, the wisest speculations, the best resources is babbling of babies. We don't know. We don't even know what tomorrow brings. Jesus brings that up over and over. You don't even know what tomorrow brings. In Job, we see God say to Job, do you know these basics? How do, how do deer find each other? How do the mountain streams run? You don't know anything. So stop pretending like you do. But here we're seeing something dangerous happen. Not, this isn't a personal belief system. This is leaders using their platform to irreverently babble about the word of God and about things that are important to God. The speculations of these proud men have led the body of Christ into a disgusting medical state. The term gangrene is not pretty. I was, I was debating with the pastors if we should put up a picture of it, and then after I researched it, I'm like, no, it's too gross. Gangrene is literally the rotting of living tissue on the human body. And it happens because of a wound or because of the constriction of blood to the area where the, the, the flesh literally just starts necrotizing, dying. And it's, it's, it's not a disease, it's not a specific bacteria, it's just a state. It's gross, and back then, in Paul's world, in the first century, it was almost a death sentence. I mean, if I got necrot- gangrene on my arm, it would be 100% guaranteed, unless a miracle happened, I would lose the arm. That would be, that's how it happens. So when Paul brings up this term gangrene, he's saying, <laughs> by, by just association, that that infected limb will be cut off. The physician will have to cut off the limb that is affected. And so he's saying that this talk, this kind of puffed up talk about, about subjects that people don't know, this prideful speculation results in gangrene that spreads throughout the body of Christ. And guess what happens when it happens? You can't really fix it. You just got to cut it off. And remember, this is not talking about societies or, or different like uh, secular groups. This is talking about churches. This is talking about this is talking about the people of God. This is why it's so important to read Second Timothy during this season because this is happening everywhere. But before I unpack kind of like what happens when a church gets cut off, let's continue. Paul doesn't stop with this theoretical gangrene example. He gives two names. He gives two people. He gives specific names. And these, these church leaders were presumably taught by a disciple, possibly even Paul, um, and yet they were turning away from the teachings that they were given to these prideful speculations about the resurrection. They're saying, you know when you get baptized, maybe something like this, you know when you get baptized and Jesus says, you were, Paul says you were buried with him and then you were raised with him? Well, that's the, that's the resurrection. That's what it is. Uh, it's not some other time when, when Jesus will come back and our bodies will be raised from the dead. Like, the resurrection is now because 
you know, Paul said it. He says, you know, our bodies are raised with Christ symbolically through the water, but actually maybe it's more than a symbol. Maybe it's happening. And it's causing confusion. The people that are hearing this are like, I don't, I don't think that's right, but these guys are leaders. So uh, let's, let's, let's hear them out. The reality is that these guys, their legacy now is written in stone. Their legacy, their, their, their accomplishments, all we see is their heretical statement here. Paul, all Paul says is like, this is what they're doing. They're upsetting the faith of some. That's it. We don't see anything else happen. We don't hear like, and then they repented and were restored. This is dangerous, guys, because the legacy of these men ended here, and we don't know the result other than the negative result. And why do I keep harping on this? Well, we'll, we'll build a case soon about why this is important for us. So let's finish it out. Verse 19 says, but God's firm foundation stands, and this is what it means, to bear this seal the Lord knows who are his, and also let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So Paul's like, hey man, there's people out there, there's leaders out there that are engaging in these really harmful ways of speaking, that are puffing themselves up at the cost of the word of God, they're causing the body of Christ to be, <laughs> to be infected, and it sounds pretty intense, and it is. So he goes, hey, guess what, there's comfort here. Our God has two truths to give you through me. The first is that, unlike the wise speculations of men, God is always accurate and God is always in the now. God knows who are his. Now, what does that mean? Now, it means that God is above us. God is king, and we are below him. We are not king. We are not rulers. It is not Timothy's job to decipher the spiritual state of certain people. It's not his job to judge them and go, well, they're going to go to hell. It's not his job. God knows who are his. It's a both used as a weapon against falsehood and also a comfort for those who are his, right? You can be like, well, I know that God knows that I'm his. And I don't know if that person over there is God's, but, you know, it's not my job to worry about it. It's my job to, like Paul says, rightly handle the word of truth, to be a, a humble, quiet worker working for the approval of him, not to worry about others, not to get annoyed at the chatty Cathy's and the gossipy Greg's. So that's the first. The first comfort. We don't have to figure out who's a true Jesus believer. Second comfort is that we will know, we will begin to see and know the people of God by two fruit. One is the fruit of repentance. Because we all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. In fact, if you were, if you were to say, you know, like, I don't need to repent anymore. I'm a saved believer. I don't make mistakes anymore. You're a liar. You need to repent of that. <laughs> repentance is a normal rhythm of being a Christ follower because we keep making mistakes. But guess what? Grace abounds. We have the ultimate redeemer. We have Jesus who died on the cross and his blood has washed us eternally. That blood does not just run out. The power of Jesus does not run out. His forgiveness extends forever. So we need to continue to take advantage of that and repent and turn from our sin. But there's another angle of this too. We need to also depart from sin and, and also depend upon him. So there's this repentance aspect and dependence aspect. They depend upon the Lord. See, those who names the name of the Lord, who cries out to Jesus, like, I need you. Not only am I broken and I need to repent, but I need you to, to, to live. I need you to be the abundant Christian life, to have that in my heart. I can't just grow that on my own. And so there's two comforts here. He's saying God's in control, and guess what? You, all you got to do to prove that you're his is to depend upon him and to repent from your sins. 
And we're all in process here, guys. Like, if you are ever confused or worried about your own state or maybe the state of someone else's faith, I mean, that's what the church is for. You can talk to your small group leaders. You can talk to a pastor. Like, we're here to help unpack that, to, to wrestle with that with you. That's kind of our role, is that we are, we, are, we are still figuring it out alongside you, but we also have gotten a little bit more in-depth in Scripture, so maybe we can help you out with just the, how the Bible unpacks stuff. So remember, there's craziness happening. There's, there's leaders going off the chain. But there's a, there's a comfort here, too, that, that God is in control, that these people are not running the show, that God will eventually deal with the problem and maybe even in a harsh way cut off the rotting limb to save the body. So let's try to unpack this for us today. Let's diagnose the problem here that Paul is trying to help Timothy understand. So the main theme is that there's a danger and damage inherent with irreverent talk specifically among the leadership, but also amongst the body after it starts to spread. So there's an infection happening here. And I'd, I'd include public figures, not just church leaders, but public figures that use um, spirituality or, or biblical phrases or biblical theology to prove their point. Like this isn't just for pastors. This is for people that would say, I'm an authority. I am also an authority on, on the spiritual world, on truth, on, on biblical values, right? And so... That's like the issue here, that the hot-button issues of life can often be like grabbed by people who are in leadership and then infused with their version of what Scripture means, and that's dangerous. And that's what we're going to talk about, like how do we figure out how to navigate that crazy scenario, which is happening all the time here in America, specifically this year. But before that, I want to make a caveat. I'm not an expert. I don't know much. <laughs> I'm learning I just turned 30, and I'm figuring out life. I'm learning how to be a dad. I'm learning how to be a leader. I'm learning how to be a better husband every day. I don't know much. I don't know the hearts of people. I don't want to call out all of America as this toxic wasteland. Uh, I don't want to call out every leader as somebody who's hiding sin or speaking falsehood. No. In fact, we have tons. We have a ton of people championing the truth of God in their vocations and in their positions, and I, I want to applaud them. I want to say that God's working. God is victorious, right? God's people are always going to be here and always persevere and always push through. That's, that's what we hold to, because Jesus did it, and he led the way. We can have faith that God is going to keep that going, but we do have to talk about these scenarios, because Paul brings them up. Paul's telling Timothy, these things can happen, and let's figure out how to fix them, you know? So let's talk about the first sign of infection. If you want to know if there's something wrong with a church or a group of believers or maybe even an ideology or a group of, of people in the, the secular world that, that kind of grab a hold of biblical values, here's how to tell the first sign of infection. So Paul warns Timothy, who is training people to be good workers, to keep his fellow leaders in line, right? The rot always begins with the leaders. And that's true in biblical history. A lot of times the people of God when they sinned and, and slept, slipped away into idolatry in the Old Testament, was because the, the leaders in the temple did that first. They're the first ones to lose faith in God. And then all of a sudden people are like, well, if the priest doesn't care about the temple, why do I care about the temple? Which is why the Pharisees in Jesus' time were so adamant about pointing people to, to the temple. They were saying, this is important. But then even in doing so, they weren't depending on God, they were depending on their own smarts, and they turned the temple into an idol. So that's a topic for another time, but the idea is that the leaders are the ones that start the rot and the sickness in the body. If people you follow or admire or learn from have a tendency to swing towards 
prideful speculation, to be arrogant in their knowledge, to be above uh, any counter-argument, to just kind of push aside the other side, right? If those are the people that you're following, especially if it comes to Scripture or sort of spiritual things, you have to have now two options with this, with this scenario. You either leave, you either leave their leadership, or if you have a relationship with them, you can call out, you can call them to repentance and love. But this is hard because a lot of us don't want to be alone. Humans are wired to be tribal. We want to have our groups. We want to have our leaders. We want to have our idols. We want to have people ahead of us and, and groups of people that we agree with. So leaving is very difficult. And even more so, conflict is even more difficult for a lot of us. Standing up to bad leadership is very scary. And Paul is telling Timothy, sometimes it takes that. It, sometimes it takes calling out bad leadership. Obviously, under the, under the grace and love of Christ who he's shown us, his forgiveness, we try to give that out too. But there's also a level where this is, like, this is a crisis. A doctor isn't going to be like, well, you know, the gangrenous limb, I'll just, you know, I'll put some medicine on it. I'll like tell it it's still working good. You know, we'll pretend it's, it's healthy. No, no, it's going to die eventually, right? This is dangerous. You could, you could lose more of your body if you don't cut it off. But Paul is saying, like, in these scenarios, we obviously have to be humble. We have to work as if we work for God. Grace abounds, but guess what? Sometimes we got to do the hard work of calling out toxic leadership. And I've actually had to do this in a church scenario. Um, something that I don't like talking about much because it didn't end well, but... Um, there was a scenario at a church where an elder, we were in this meeting, and an elder was basically revealing in front of everyone um, that he was a sexist racist. Uh, there's no other way to say that about this certain group of people and this certain person specifically, but also kind of just speaking down, and, and nobody was saying anything. This is a room of pastors and elders. Nobody was saying a word. Just going off. And basically applying this person's bad behavior to, and, and potent, in his eyes to all the other people groups that are attached to that person. And I was sick. I actually got sick to my stomach. And I felt this fire. Like, God was like, say something. Say something. Not because you got to be right or have your say, but because he's poisoning the well. These people are like kind of almost by being quiet, they're, they're, they might agree with him. So I challenged him. Uh, I tried to challenge him in love, just ask some questions and be like, well, is that really what's happening? And like, is there a way you can see this differently? And he pushed back every time, just like, no, this person's wrong. They're stupid. And it's because of their upbringing, because their culture is wrong, because I, I don't like the way they think. I don't understand. I don't care. And I had to call it out. And it honestly ruined my relationship with that person. But I, I, tried, to, I tried my best. I tried my best to be like, I, I got to disagree with you, man. Like, this is not the way that church leaders should be talking about their flock. So it's hard, but you got to root out bad leadership, either by leaving or by trying your best to fix it. But sometimes it can't be fixed, and so we have the second sign of infection, which is disunity within the body. Now, disunity, you could tell that you're infected if, if you start having relationships fall apart at home or at church, uh, where, where maybe you feel there's a disconnection within a local group, a body of people. Uh, maybe it's leading your friends or maybe you to, to be confused about the issues at hand. Like, why are we arguing about this? Or why are people getting so angry about this small thing? And maybe we're the focus of church or, or church groups or faith groups or even 
political groups is, isn't even talking about the main purposes at all. It's just slamming people. It's just being toxic and, and hateful and, and, and focusing on the wrong issues constantly. Well, that's, that's how we start diagnosing the second sign of infection. Man, like the people are, are not loving one another. The people are not unified. I'm part of those people, right? We, this year has brought this out in a lot of us. Maybe you've grown short-tempered over this season. Maybe you're speaking your mind about God would really want to say to that group of people as if you're an authority on who God is. Maybe you struggle with the hot-button issues of our culture and how to, to bring faith into it and infuse faith into it and maybe make some laws to fix it. Or maybe you struggle with um, your sexual expression and your, how, your, how that expression is contrary to the Bible, but the culture totally says it's okay. Right? These, are, these are real issues that all of us have struggled with in some form or fashion. I have struggled this year with anger more than I have since I was probably in college. Like, it's just come up in my heart so much because of the, just the, this year and the groups of people that are just being fragmented, our country that feels like it's at, at each other's throats. Prideful speculation from leaders trickles down and becomes kind of our, our, our safe haven. Our frustrations, our pride can be a shield against discomfort and against all these other things that may be too big for us to think about. Well, I know what's right, so I'm going to hold to that. I'm going to be rude to those people. I'm going to push those people away. That's how the toxin begins working its way through the body. People stop saying, I'm a worker for God. Let's figure out what he wants. Let's see through his eyes. Like Jesus says in Matthew 5, like, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. And basically, they will see with God's eyes. Like, we need to be seeking how God sees the world and, and then responding. Not saying, I see it this way, or I don't know, and so I'm just going to push everything else back. If you have that infection in your heart, if you have this kind of prideful, irreverent babble that is ruining relationships, ruining your own self-talk, ruining your, your attitude, let's repent. Because guess what, guys? We actually have a way to stop the infection. We have a divine remedy that can only be done by Christians. It's called repentance. Paul talks about it. We can stop the infection by challenging bad leaders and repenting and turning and seeking healing and wholeness with Jesus. I don't want to ever become a part of a gangrenous group of believers. <laughs> I don't want to become a limb that has to cut off. And I don't have to let it get there because Jesus has provided a way out. Because God's remedy is that the plague of prideful speculation in the world should end every time in disaster. Paul knows this. He, he lived a really rough life watching churches rise and fall. But Jesus modeled, modeled it to us how even in light of the harshest circumstances and the most fractured community and the biggest lies and the biggest fake news and the biggest political, political decisions, he didn't sin. He didn't give in and was part of the problem. He didn't rot with the rest of the nation. He provided a way through it. Jesus lived a life of woe and pain and tribulation and deprivations not to show off, but to show us the way. Have, if any of you have ever gone hiking or, or gone through the snow, you know, if, if it's just wild, it's really hard to move anywhere. You have to have somebody be the trail for you, either stamping their way through the snow or cutting their way through the underbrush. And that's what Jesus did. He pounded a trail through the chaotic forest of life. He gave us a pathway back to God by his example of, I'm not going to let the world poison me. I'm not going to let leaders tell me what to do. I'm not going to give in to those evil 
prideful speculations about others' faith or, and what the world really should be doing. I'm going to just be obedient to what God is saying in, for me today. He is giving us a way of truth, love, and grace, and ultimately freedom. And he modeled that through his life. But the hardest part about this reality is it's not just like something that happened and then we can just enter into it once and we're good and we're just on the trail behind Jesus. It requires a constant humility. And Paul says an intense focus, just like the worker and the, the farmer and the athlete and the soldier. You have to focus, like high, highly focus on who Jesus is and what he wants and really give your life to that. You have to constantly redirect and repent of going outside of his boundaries and going to another trail. You have to constantly depend upon him and say, I am not worthy to find my own way. God's remedy for us, for this disease that should end always in being cut off from the presence of God, is, is available, but it's difficult. If we don't enter into this way of life today, we are, we are in danger of becoming the two men mentioned here, Hymenaeus and Philetus. They were at the peak of their platform. They were being heard by people. People were agreeing with them. They were probably young men who were like, hey, our, our platform is growing. Our own theology about the resurrection is taking off. They only saw themselves as going up. That's where they believed their life was going. But that moment was the moment that their legacy ended, that they would be remembered in in infamy, infamy for history is that these men were heretical leaders. That was their, that's it. That's all we know of them. And the problem is we in America have lost sight of the end goal. We have lost sight of how to get there. And, we, and because of that, we've actually lost sight of the present. We don't care anymore what we say. We don't care what our words, what our words do to people. We don't care what our attitudes do to people. Politically, socially, spiritually, relationally, we're just saying things and doing things to hurt people because we're tired of it. We want to be the right for once. We want to have, we want to have the right word for once. We, as a, as a nation, are basically punching each other in the face constantly. We're just like, pa, ha, I'm better than you. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Pah-pah. We're just fighting. We're just a big, brawling mob. And the worst part is often the, Christian isn't, the Christians and the church is in the thick of it. We're, we're almost leading it. And guess what, guys? That's, that's gangrene. That means we're going to be cut off if we enter into that way of life. We're going to be cut off if we're in, in those kind of groups. That's God's, that's God's divine justice played out over and over and over and over through the Bible and through history. So instead of that, let's start embracing the remedy that God has for us, which is the grace poured out on the cross for us from Christ's own body so that we can live abundant life now. But it does take daily reminders of what it means to be a worker. I will leave you with this decision today. Your legacy begins right now. The phrase, live your legacy today, is what I want you to remember every day. Live what you want on your tombstone today. Not tomorrow. Don't take this year as a mulligan. Don't be like, well, this is just a rough year for everyone. It doesn't matter how I act or who I, who, who I interact with or how I interact with them. No, it does. It does. Every moment. That's what's so difficult about being a Christian is every moment matters to God. We don't get to just push things off in the future and make, and make decisions about it later and be a better person later. No, we got to start now. I'm going to read you soon in the same letter, two tombstone uh, 
options. Um, <laughs> and it's going to be hard for maybe some of us. And it was very hard for me to read it. But the first one is kind of a biblical mashup of several concepts. And would you want this on your tombstone? Right, here it is. Here lies one approved by God, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handled the word of truth, and so was named a good and faithful servant. I, I like that option. <laughs> I hope you do too. I want that option. I want to be, at the end of my life, not making men happy, but making God happy. And because I make God happy, guess what? I make other people happy too. I want to be a good father and a good husband. I'll be a good leader because I was focusing my eyes on Jesus. I want my tombstone to say, here lies one approved by God, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handled the word of truth and was so named a good and faithful servant. I want that. But let's see what happens later in, in, in 2 Timothy. Paul gives another example of what could happen to, to people that call themselves Christians. 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 4 says, Here lies a, a lover of self, lover of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's the tombstone that is written for some people that would call themselves Christians. That's what's at stake when we live our life recklessly. When we think, I am, I'm swollen with the pride of my own opinions. I have speculation that blows up. I have conjecture. I have conspiracy theories that will blow your small little mind. Guess what? That's your, that's your uh, epitaph. This is going to be written on your tombstone one day if you are unrepentant, if you don't depend on Jesus. This person, or these people that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3 that I just read, that list that I don't want to read again because they're basically curses, right? They began compromising their legacy daily. They weren't thinking about the end of their life. They were thinking about how to get ahead now. They weren't thinking that if I want to have Jesus say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, I have to start now. They're saying, I'll get to that later. I got my own ego to build and my own platform to push. They followed the lead of deceitful men who cared only about their ego and their platform and therefore became cursed in God's eyes and cut off. They became gangrenous growths in the church of God. So which one do you want? Which tombstone would you want? The first one or the second one? The one that matters to God or the one that will matter only to you until it's over? I ask you that let us keep our eyes on our Father who is in heaven and be workers of a humble heart and full of words of truth. I love you all, and uh, I know this is a, a hard word, but it's been feeding me a lot, so I hope it does for you. I'll see you. See you. <laughs>